The reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of their righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. She's happy. That's all that matters. I heard those words this week when watching a recent episode of Silent Witness. A mother was to be reunited with her daughter. The daughter she believed to be dead, but she had recently discovered had been stolen from her at birth. And this mother, she sees the daughter playing happily in the garden of her adopted parents. And although she longs to be reunited with her child, she looks at her and she says, she's happy, that's all that matters. And she decides against joining her. It struck me how concisely that short phrase summarises the Uh, encapsulates the spirit of our age. Bookshops are well stocked with titles like this one. Happiness, a guide to developing life's most important skill. We're led to believe that happiness comes from material prosperity, yet as a leading economist Richard Layard uh, wrote only a few years ago, as societies become richer, They do not become happier. All the evidence shows that on average people have grown no happier over the last uh, 50 years, even as average incomes have doubled. And recently governments have got uh, wise to this paradox. And even today the Sunday Times reports that uh, David Cameron is to make ministers use happiness Uh, happiness of voters as a yardstick before deciding on new policies. All government policies, programmes and projects, they report, will be tested for their effect on people's well-being in a move to make individual happiness a key indicator of their success. Well, David Cameron is right to insist that there is more to life than economic wealth but wrong, I suggest, to insist that, uh, or to believe that government policy is capable of bringing it about. For happiness happiness that does not get washed away on the incoming tide, we need to turn to our Bibles. 
And this morning we start a series looking at Jesus' teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount. Described by John Stott as the best known and yet least understood of Jesus' teaching. So please turn with me in the Church Bibles to page 968, the reading that has just been read to us, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. At the start of his ministry, immediately after his baptism and temptation, Jesus had begun to announce the good news that the kingdom of God, long promised, long promised throughout the Old Testament era, was now, now on the threshold. With Jesus, a a new era had dawned, an era in which his followers are to be different. Different from the nominal religion of their day. Nominal, different from the secular world in which they lived. Verse 1, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them. You see, Jesus here draws aside from the crowds, the crowds of people who, despite their curiosity, for the most part remained neutral and uncommitted. And he turns to his disciples, to those who had made a commitment to Jesus as Messiah. Messiah. So if that is you this morning, please sit up and take notice because these words of Jesus are addressed to you and to me. They bring us a challenge to be counter-cultural, not to blend into society like a chameleon, but having a distinctive lifestyle with radically different values, different from the world in which we live. If, on the other hand, you are still exploring the Christian faith, then I'm really glad that you've chosen today to be with us. You've chosen a good day because Jesus starts here to set out what his followers are to be like. And I really encourage you to come back to the rest of the series as well, because over the next four Sunday mornings, we will be reflecting on verses 3 to 10 of Matthew's Gospel that have been read to us just now. Known, as you probably know, as the Beatitudes. And starting today, we're looking at just two verses, verses 3 and 4. The whole section of the Beatitudes is identified by two verbal bookends. If you look down, you can see at the beginning of verse 3, <coughs> and then at, uh, in verse 10 at the end, we have the same phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And that not only identifies this section of Jesus' teaching, but it also gives us a pretty strong hint as to what it's about. It's about the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount as a whole sets out a remarkably comprehensive statement of Jesus' teaching and he starts here in the Beatitudes 
with a description of a Christian's character. What is expected of a, of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? And it's important for us to understand that these eight statements do not um, uh, describe eight separate and distinct groups of disciples. No, they are eight qualities, eight attitudes, if you like, that are expected of all believers. As John Stott puts it, They don't either describe an elitist set, a small spiritual aristocracy remote from the common run of Christians. On the contrary, the Beatitudes are Christ's own specification of what every Christian should be. All these qualities are to characterise all his followers, just as the fruits of the Spirit Um, that the Apostle Paul identifies are to be evident flourishing in every Christian. Indeed, as we shall see, all the characteristics identified in these verses are spiritual ones. As you glance down through those (coughs) uh, verses, you will see immediately that each verse starts with the word blessed. Blessed. It's this word, of course, that gives the Beatitudes their their name. It's derived from the Latin Beatus. But what does it mean? The Greek word is actually very difficult to translate. It includes the idea of happiness that I referred to earlier, but it's more than that. Happiness, you see, is an emotion, often dependent upon outward circumstances. But more than that, blessed is a term of commendation, of congratulation. It's not a term of how we feel about God, but about what God thinks of us. The blessing described here is the gloriously comprehensive blessing of Christ's rule. And we have to remember, of course, that we are living in these days between the now and the not yet. We taste the the first fruits of that blessing, but the full experience of it will only come in the life of the world to come. That was just by way of introduction. Now we're clear about the context and the purpose of the passage we're ready to reflect upon the first two Beatitudes. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Can you bring the next slide up? Thanks. Each of the Beatitudes defines the characteristic that evokes the blessing and then the nature of that blessing. So Jesus talks first about the poor in spirit. What does that mean, poor in spirit? Well, it's a contrast in many ways to the spiritually proud, the spiritually self-sufficient, 
And we can gain insight into its meaning by turning to the Old Testament where the the poor man is one who is both afflicted and unable to save himself. And who therefore turns to God for salvation. It is those who are contrite. For example, speaking through Isaiah, God says, I live in a high and holy place but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. No surprise then that it is to such as these that the good news is to be preached. Jesus quotes Isaiah when he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. It is the poor in spirit who are receptive to the good news. Eugene Peterson captures the sense well when he translates uh, that verse 3 as follows. You are blessed when you are at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Right through the Bible, there are examples of people who thought that they could do it on their own. People like the builders of the Tower of Babel, They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. They were not at the end of their rope. They were not poor in spirit. And ridiculous though it sounds, they thought they could build a tower high enough to reach the heavens. (laughs) Of course, we're more sophisticated than that these days. But I think we can all too easily make the same ridiculous mistake. Too readily, we can fall into the trap of uh, believing that we can earn our way into the kingdom of heaven or at least give God a helping hand by reading the Bible every day, by praying for half an hour every day, by helping our elderly neighbour. The list is endless. And good though all of these things are in their own right, none of them will help us to enter the kingdom of heaven. That blessing only comes to those who acknowledge that they have reached the end of their rope. To those who have the dependent humility of a, of a little child, to them is granted the blessing of the kingdom of heaven. So if you're here this morning and hesitating about becoming a follower of Jesus because you think you're not good enough, maybe because you're burdened by the weight of some past sin, then think again. That is exactly the attitude that God is looking for. You see, in Jesus' day, it was not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom of heaven, for they thought they were rich. But the publicans, the prostitutes, the rejects of society who knew that they could offer and achieve nothing. If, on the other hand, you're here this morning, you've been a disciple of Jesus for many years, beware. 
beware lest any trace of self-satisfaction is, and is allowed to creep into our relationship with God. And as we come to the Holy Communion this morning, let us reflect carefully on the song, the hymn that we will sing in a moment. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me saviour or I die. So the kingdom of heaven is for the poor in spirit. And that brings us to the second link in the chain of spiritual blessing that is described in these verses. Have a look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Well, it's clear from the context that Jesus is not primarily here talking about those who mourn the loss of a loved one, but those who mourn the loss of their innocence, their righteousness, their self-respect. You see, it's not the sorrow of bereavement to which Jesus refers here, but the sorrow of repentance. You see, it's, it's one thing to acknowledge intellectually, if you like, that uh, we are spiritually poor. But it's another to grieve over it, to mourn for our sin. And Paul writes to the Ephesians, doesn't he, that our sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Surely it should grieve us too. When after the Babylonian exile, uh, Ezra the scribe reads the Bible to the people of the new, in the newly rebuilt Jerusalem, the people wept physically when they heard it. They had been newly sensitised to the demands of God's law and correspondingly aware of how far they fell short of its demands. And they wept. Is there a danger that our hearts have become hardened by what the writer to Hebrews describes as sin's deceitfulness? That like a frog being boiled steadily alive as the heat is turned up, we just don't notice anymore? Let alone grieve over our sin. This week Sue and I were uh, reading Exodus in our morning devotions and reading about God's instruction for the cons- uh, instruction for the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And one of the things that struck us was that even the altar needed to be atoned for because it had become contaminated just by the hands of the people who had made it. If you were here last Sunday night, you will have heard Neil expounding Psalm 51 in which uh, David says... I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. David grieved over his sin. But interestingly, he only became conscious of his sin when confronted by Nathan the prophet. And we 
only become conscious of our sin as we daily soak ourselves in God's word. That must remain a priority for every follower of Jesus if we are to avoid the fate of the proverbial frog. Not, of course, that mourning for our sin is an end in itself. And in the second half of verse 4, we see that, uh, the, see that the blessing for those who mourn is that they will be comforted. And the greatest comfort of all is to know that our sins have been forgiven. Not through any effort of our own, but solely through Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection and ascension to new life. It is that death, resurrection and ascension that we celebrate as we come to the communion table this morning. We remember Jesus, who is the one who comforts, who comforts those who mourn their sinfulness. Not, of course, that God takes away the trials and tribulations of this present age. He uses them for our sanctification. He uses them to make us holy. And only in heaven will God wipe away every tear from our eyes. But the comfort that he does provide here and now is the comfort of knowing that our sins are forgiven and that the penalty for those sins has been passed, uh, has been paid by Christ's death on the cross. That is a real blessing. As I conclude, let me tell you a story. A man named Jack was walking along a steep cliff one day when he got too close to the edge and fell. On the way down, he grabbed a branch which temporarily stopped his fall. He looked down and to his horror saw the canyon below fell straight down for more than a thousand feet. He couldn't hang on to the branch forever. There was no way for him to climb back up the steep wall of the cliff. So Jack began yelling hoping that someone passing by would hear him and lower a rope or something. Help! Help! Is there anybody up there? Help! He yelled and yelled. But no one heard him. And then he heard a voice. Jack! Jack! Can you hear me? Yes, yes, I can hear you. I'm, I'm, I'm down here. I can see you, Jack. Are you all right? Yes, but who are you and where are you? I'm the Lord, Jack. I'm everywhere. The Lord? You mean God? Yeah, that's me. Oh God, please get me down. I promise that if you help me from here, I'll, I'll stop sinning. I'll, I'll be a really good person. I'll, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. <laughs> Easy on the promises, Jack. Let's get you down from there and then we can talk. Now, here's what I want you to do. Listen carefully. I'll do anything, Lord. I just, just get me down. Okay. Let go of the branch. What? I said, let go of the branch. Just trust me. Let go. 
There was a long silence and finally Jack yelled, Help! Help! Is anyone else up there? Jesus calls us to a life that is countercultural. That means living and adopting attitudes that are different to the attitudes and values of the world in which we live. Attitudes which do not come naturally. And as we've studied these two verses together, I think there is one clear message that comes through. God's blessing comes to those who approach him with empty hands and contrite hearts. God's blessing comes to those who approach him with empty hands and contrite hearts. And the questions that I've asked myself in preparing this, and I leave you with, are these. Have I... Am I clinging on to something in my life which is inhibiting God's blessing? Am I clinging on to something in my life which is inhibiting God's blessing? And secondly, have I fully grasped the seriousness of my sin? It is only when we approach God, poor in spirit, grieving over our sin, that we experience the blessings of entering his, his kingdom and experience the blessing of his comfort.